Pride Nation 101. Welcome to Pride Nation 101, queer voices, music, opinions, and lives. From Highway 101 to the world. I'm Roland Corey Medina. And I'm Chad Oliver Swimmer, coming to you from the unceded land, now known as Casper, California. Welcome. Tonight on Pride Nation, we will be speaking with Polly Gervin, activist, lawyer, environmentalist, and lifelong resident of Northern California. We will also hear about what our friends Women With Bows were doing in South Dakota last month. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. like to welcome Polly Gervin to Pride Nation 101. Polly Gervin is a federal Indian law attorney, an environmental and social justice activist. She has been a tribally appointed representative for government-to-government consultations between the state of California and the Coyote Valley Band of Pomo Indians in that tribe's efforts to save the grandmother trees and protect Native American ancestral, cultural, and biological resources in Jackson Demonstration State Forest. She has been for many years and continues to this day to be a fearless fighter for the causes dear to her heart. Just six months ago, she was arrested in Sacramento with a group of other activists protesting government inaction on co-management issues at the California Natural Resources Agency. Polly Gervin, it is a great honor to have you on our show. How are you doing? Fine, so pleased to be with you. So you sent me an email a couple months ago And it said, I'd like to quote you, being out of the closet for so, so long through so, so much prejudice over the years is the most important political act of my life. When I read this, it surprised me as you've been an effective activist for so many causes and now really crucial to the movement for Pomo Land Back. Why do you feel that issues of gender and sexual preference are so important? Well, I hearken back to what I've seen in my lifetime, uh, the cumulative impact of a lot of ignorance and prejudice. Starting out when I was um, early college, Anita Bryant, going after gay folks, starting out with the diagnostic manual of the psychiatrist, finally saying that gays were not mentally disordered, going on to uh, the criminal case of two men in the privacy of their home, making love, and being uh, being convicted in Texas of sodomy charges, uh, criminal sodomy, going on to the Briggs Initiative, which would have not allowed any gay people to be teachers in California, and then uh, just the horror of the lack of government attention to the AIDS epidemic, devastating the male gay community. As well as finally, which is so odd, I was so shocked by it, finally getting our equal protection rights in the venue of gay marriage. I thought given the Christianity, uh, like the Mormon church, the Catholic church, 
that have been so vehemently opposed to gay rights, funding with millions of dollars Proposition 8, which would which prohibited gay marriage in California. So I went through that. And then finally, the Supreme Court granting equal protection for gay marriage. I thought it would come under employment rights first, not because of Christianity and its phobia against gays. I didn't think it would be in the venue of marriage. So this is why I say it. The most virulent prejudice I have experienced is not as a Chicana, but as a lesbian. And it was a time, a difficult time to come out when I was young. The only book I was able to read, The Well of Loneliness, ended up with a lesbian committing suicide. It was uh, it was also very difficult with family um, and, and the feelings that, you know, people want to be grandparents, people, whatever. It was very difficult in my family setting with my mother. It was the bravest act, I would say, political act of my life because I had to come out to employers. I was out to employers. I was out to my family. Um, and I did it because Harvey Milk, uh, I was a young attorney in the Bay Area during Harvey Milk's tenure on the Board of Supervisors and um, his assassination, of course, for being gay as well. Actually, on my first day to go to federal court, I was driving across the bridge and heard that Harvey Milk had been assassinated. It was quite hard to do my first oral argument, uh, having just heard that. But I say why it was the most important is Harvey was right when he said, you can't fight for rights from a closet. You can't fight for rights hiding yourself away. So I came out and I have been out since the age of 28. I've been in many, many different uh, forums, both in Canada, United States, and in much, many, many, many tribal organizational meetings and forums. And uh, Priscilla and I always just walked in with our heads held high and would rest our laurels on our abilities and our abilities to produce results, which we both have been quite competent at being able to do. So that is why it took courage. It takes courage to be an other, to be a stigmatized other. And I just know because a woman, a consolidated tribal health, mental health counselor told me that there are kids in Indian country, gay kids, who have not committed suicide because they can turn to the example of me and Priscilla. So Mm -hmm. that's sort of my answer to that question. I wish Roland were here to see here to hear that and elaborate because Roland has, you know, we've talked about that here. And what is the use of being on the radio? And I'm saying, you know, first and foremost, that people know we're here and people know that we are not afraid to state who we are and walk, walk with our heads held high. And live dynamic lives filled with adventure, which I have had the opportunity to do, filled with meeting so many different people of different races, different classes, different political and religious affiliations. I've had a rich cornucopia of community, activist community in my life and probably choosing the moral folks uh, in the path for justice and in the path for peace and in the path for protecting Mother Earth, you're more likely than not going to find really good, decent people. So I just want the young people to know that they can have a rich and vastly wonderful life 
being gay, being trans, being bi, being gender fluid. It's not, that is not, that's a part of who you are, essential part of who you are, and your core identity. But there's so much that we can, as gay people, express ourselves with uh, and, and, and other fights we can join as allies. So I just want, um, I'm really happy now with the environmental movement. I was at an Earth First training event up in years a couple of years ago. And there was a great deal of fluidity amongst this new generation of youthful activists, from bisexual to transgender to gay. It was just so lovely to see that this new generation of activists seem perfectly comfortable. And many, many of them seem much more comfortable than in the old days. You have to admit the AIM, uh, La Raza movement, it was pretty macho back in the day in the late 60s. So I, I never felt that comfortable coming out. And it, it, even the anti-war movement was very macho. I think that I'm just part of an evolution of the lesbian, gay, transgender movement it, it, where we can all feel safe breathing in many different forums. And, and I'm really glad to say that that has happened in my lifetime. Going back a little bit. So what do you think makes just an individual everyday act political? Wow, I was raised so politically, you know, it, it seems like good two thirds of my life has been political. I think speaking truth to power in any of its manifestations, and there's many, makes an act political. I think that when you think of the collective as opposed just to your individual success. Our society really champions competition, individual success, non-collaborative sort of models. But for me, politics is, is praxis, not just theory. I mean, I was raised in Berkeley, so many brilliant intellectuals of the left, many of whom were theoretically quite capable of Hegelian analysis, Marxist analysis, uh, whatever. But in their day-to-day -day life, we're living lives of a lot of privilege, uh, you know, lovely homes in the Berkeley Hills. So I always believed in what Hegel and Marx call praxis, that you get out there and you put your values, your theories, your analysis, you put them into action. For me, the personal is political because That's as it. an example, my gay identity is personal, but it, it, by coming out, that's the political part of it. You know, going to PTA meetings with your woman partner when you're helping nurture kids, little acts like that, though it's just a PTA meeting or it's just a te parent-teacher conference, it's still you're going as two women saying we're parenting these children. So there's many little acts, it would seem to me, it appears to be in my life, that though may not be deemed political in the context of being a lesbian are political. But, and I'm political across as a Chicana. I'm political as an anti-war activist. I'm political as an environmentalist. I just was raised really morally in the 60s by, by a kick-ass leftist mom. And I think she raised me well. I didn't need to rebel. If I were to rebel in my setting, of my upbringing, I would have had to be an investment banker. I didn't <laughs> have to rebel because I was very well raised by a, a, a really great, uh, great freedom fighter, my mom. 
along those lines, can you talk a little bit about your upbringing? When did you first realize you were gay and how did that go for you as a young person? I think I had a huge crush in the in the 12th grade. I was in the drama department and we were both sort of stars of the drama department in this beautiful lady. I would say, and then into junior college, still same thing, beautiful women, interesting. Uh, and I remember finally saying, mom, I, we got to go talk. And I remember we went fishing out on the Berkeley Pier. And I said, I, I think I'm gay. I mean, I, 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 I believe I love these, I, have lo- I love women. Oh, that's just a phase, she told me. Everybody <laughs> goes through it. I went through it too. And, you know, whatever. Well, that was interesting. She said she went through it too. But, um, but so it, and so it was just sort of dismissed as, oh, well, maybe. I finally did have a relationship in like my second year of college was my first relationship with a woman. And I, it was really important for me to be able to say I loved her and not have to hide that love uh, just because I loved her. And I mean, I was entitled to say that, you know. So my mother was haranguing me. Oh, you know, I know what's going on. Don't think you're hiding anything from me and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> So the first person I literally came out to was my mother, probably the most terrifying person to come out to. But it was for the dignity of myself and the woman I loved. And that wow. was about probably 22, I'd say. Then I went through a period of alleged bisexuality. The poor boys. I mean, I had some really handsome men lovers too, between the age of 22 and 28, very successful, but it just wasn't working. And I had to sort of ultimately be honest. I just had to come out as being a lesbian. It was the most honest evaluation of myself. Oh, I think about it that like you are one generation ahead of or behind me, depending on how you look at it. And my own coming out to my mom was made so much easier because she had out lesbian friends. Well, I can say my mother didn't. <laughs> For without, she had lovely heterosexual friends, very progressive, but you know she would. She was hard. She was harsh, and she was a huge civil rights activist in the Black Civil Rights Movement. I got to meet Martin Luther King when I was thirteen. I had Fannie Lou Hamer of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee staying in my home and teaching me her stories. I, we were very, my mother was very enmeshed as a big fundraiser for the Southern Voter Registration Drive of the grassroots organization called SNCC. And I was trained, my first nonviolence trainings were in our basement children's playroom by SNCC activist. And we were taught a little bit differently than it's taught on the coast. We were taught but because we're people of color, we were taught expect the blows. We were taught to how to basically curl up in the fetal position, put our thumbs into our hands. We were taught that if we were going to do nonviolent resistance, there's every chance the cops would beat us up. So it was a different time. It was a strong time of, of people just being so brave. I'm so glad I was raised in this period. And I turned to the Black Civil Rights Movement as being my first thorough and deep teacher of progressive politics and of uh, courage. Courage. Fannie Lou Hamer was beat up all on one side of her body, all throughout a beating in a Southern racist jail one night for registering the vote. And here's this lady telling me this story. I'm 13 years old. And um, I'm like, oh, my God. 
So that's what you got to do sometimes. I mean, to get your rights. Uh, so it was a time of bravery. And the first people that really showed me that bravery were Black civil rights activists with whom my mother was affiliated. I guess, you know, so I, I'm so fortunate. And then the peace movement in my youth taught me a great deal of bravery. I was arrested in the 12th grade. I faced three three felonies blocking. Uh, we, it was at the uh, Oakland Induction Center, Stop the Draft Week. We blocked the Oakland Induction Center doors and blocked the buses that took the boys to their training for the Vietnam War. And um, I wasn't expecting three felonies to be faced in the 12th grade. Uh-uh. Um, <laughs> needless to say, I thought, you know, I don't know, maybe trespassing in the front door. But when you do something on federal property, it ups the ante, blocking the ingress and egress of federal employees, trespassing on federal land. It bumps it all up to felony. So I, at a very early age, had to stand by my convictions. Um, I had studied Thoreau. I had studied Gandhi very, very deeply. And I really was against what I considered a very immoral war. You are listening to Pride Nation 101, queer voices, music, opinions, and lives from Highway 101 to the world. As some people know, Polly and I have had our differences, but we have both worked through them and come to a deeper understanding. As she has said, let bygones be bygones. But I have to say that if I had heard the upcoming interview a few years ago, I might have had a bit more humility. This woman is a powerhouse, a proudly out lesbian, activist attorney, environmentalist, anti-war warrior, defender of battered women, counsel to working people, and a person who's not afraid to dance if the music is good. I've learned so much from Polly and her life partner, Priscilla Hunter, an elder of the Coyote Valley Band of Pomo. I am continually inspired. Check it out. So even though I was just a 12th grader and I went, there were other Berkeley High kids who went, had to face this too. I guess I had to experience the courage of my convictions a lot. And maybe when you stand up and you don't cave in, maybe when you just take it in civil disobedience, you got to take it, going to jail and all that. It connects your mind and heart and spirit and makes you braver, even though it's hardship. Sometimes you have to face you and I last year were speaking about androgyny. I'd never actually examined that word in my head before. And I thought, oh, well, andro, giant, oh, basically both genders in one person. Mm-hmm. But in the modern LGBTQ movement, we don't really use that word very much anymore. It's, you know, there's gender fluid and non-binary and many other definitions. But when you were young, How did you feel about gender? How did you feel about your gender? Well, growing up, you know, I never was a kid that played with dolls. I I, I skateboarded. I climbed trees. I flew kites. I fished. I didn't really want to hang out with my mom cooking, Um, but I didn't want to be a boy either. My my brothers were, I mean, they played war all the time and shot birds with BB guns. And that, that wasn't my thing either. But it was my sister who turned me on to androgyny. She was getting her PhD at Stanford. She did her PhD thesis on androgyny and basically said it was about me. So I'm like, oh, okay, what is this? Okay, I'll check it out. And her, she explained to me 
that it's the whole nature versus nurture argument that our society has sex role stereotypes that we box boy into this and girl into that. And she thought really that the most healthy expression of self was a fluid one that included both what might be would be sex role stereotype male and other aspects that would be sex role stereotype female. And um, she saw androgyny as a blend, as a blend of both type of attributes. And I was with recently when I was at the Eagle's Nest defending the Eagle with some young people. Uh, two of the gir girls in this huge atmospheric river and you're just all huddled together and you sort of open your souls to each other. Two of the girls ex express themselves as they. They were very smart and they're explaining to me why they did. And um, it seemed to me that they were expressing androgyny, uh, that it, a they is your blend. Inside of you is a blend of both female and male attributes. So look at me, a lawyer in court. Uh, that's rather, the whole thing is patriarchal, the adversarial system. You need yeah. to be sort of male to be even to participate in it. So I have to go do that rough, you know, intellectually uh, acerbic, tough uh, courtroom stuff. And then I come home and I take care of little great grandbabies and um, we blow bubbles and we cook together and we paint together and we cuddle together. That'd be considered more the female side, uh, uh, sexual stereotype. Um, so I just believe I am a combination of both female and male uh, attribute, uh, what would be considered behavior. And um, I'm fine with that. I, I, I never liked the color pink. I wouldn't have wanted to dress in pink. I, I never let played with dolls. I, I, and and I've, I've had, um, and yeah, it was much more fun skateboarding and climbing trees. And girls can do that too, please. So, um, so that's sort of, I think from a very early age, I probably was androgynous or I guess you'd say non-binary. I think I finally came out recently as they, but I think I'm really, I am she to a large part. I mostly identify as being a girl, but then I know I have these other attributes. So I might, if there could be a she, they, I don't know my, I'm still working on the pronouns, uh, but that <laughs> I'll get around to understanding it totally. But I want to say out loud that um, I, I, I have great love in my heart for the trans kids. And I think a lot of this, our identifying pronouns is to make them feel safer. And if my, by using pronouns or androgynous pronoun, makes them feel safer, that's pretty much the reason why I'm I'm going to do it. I mean, lawyers <laughs> matters now, pronouns, he, she, or they. I mean, everyone's using the pronouns, even in their professional communications, right under their legal, you know, legal titles or legal law firms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I really feel sorry for the trans kids. This ain't right. I get so upset with this these these far right Christian fundamentalist yahoos who are so cruel to them, so despicably cruel to them. And um, you know, it was hard enough being a sort of butchy little lesbian, uh, growing a uh, young woman. And I I have a trans member in our family, uh, and I remember counseling her like, "Well, can't you just be like a butch lesbian? It'd be it's hard enough being a lesbian." And now you're going to be trans. But but she, he now told me that he did not feel comfortable in that identity, in his body. 
So I have come to understand that it is not being gay. It's separate and they are, they are, but they're just too prejudiced against. And I will stand for them any day. And if my using pronouns, they helps them, that's why I'm doing it. It's really, really great for me to hear you say it and put it that way that, you know, that it might be less important for you, for your own feelings, but to be able to be, again, a role model and to create safety for transgender youth is really powerful. I, I, there's, it's such a buzz on the right that, oh, the pronoun thing. And it's, it just drives me nuts that it's the same people who are making transgender youth's lives unsafe that don't want them to be able to even adjust their pronouns and, you know, do what makes them feel right in their own body. And it's the same, the same that the black communities now experience and the Jewish community. We can't even talk of their history. We can't even talk of slavery. Come on now. And the Mexican community. It's just, we are living through some perilously prejudiced times. And I don't know if people are quite aware of how dangerous this really is. What we're embarking, book burning, book banning, uh, shaming of trans kids. How cruel. How could anybody call themselves a Christian and treat these young people so miserably? Um, it's just, it's, it, it just really upsets me. And I see it as a continuum of white, white male supremacy, backed up by years of the Abrahamic uh, religious traditions. And it's, uh, I, I think it might be a manifestation of the patriarchy, really. The last gasp of the white patriarchy, they're just so scared. Uh, I mean, seriously, white men ruled us for 200 years in this country. And now just when some of us are entering the political arena, arena women and people of color and gay and trans folks, they're just having this hysteric reaction to wanting to allow people to have their individual liberties and freedom and their own dignity. I'm so sad for them that they're so filled with hate and that they can do it in the name of religion. It just really strikes me as the basest and cruelest of hypocrisies. Can we go back to a step to a different subject? How did you decide to become a lawyer? It has some troubled roots. I, I saw my mother um, battered by a, a, a sort of a miserable stepfather. And there was actually um, some sexual molestation in my childhood. I, I, I early on saw victimhood and, 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 and stood up to it. So when the six foot four Texan was beating on my mom, I, um, I was just a little kid. I was all of in this fifth, first grade when this started to happen. And I would put my little body in between, in, uh, right in front of this six foot four man and say, you have to stop. You have to stop. So uh, that was one instance, you know, I understood uh, victimization and that people need, you have to stand up for people, even if it be your own mom and your little. Then I think that Vietnam War arrest I mentioned, I was treated miserably in jail. And so I sort of realized, well, if you're going to be an activist or fight for rights, the system can come down hard. Uh, I also saw in my family circles people who during the HUAC hearings, the communist, the, the communist scare days, whose family had been families had been really harassed uh, just for being late. For one of them was a vice chairman of the Longshoremen Union in San Francisco. And his family 
so I, I knew I knew that even in America, uh, with alleged supposedly you know constitutional rights, your right to association and freedom of speech could be severely trampled on if they didn't like your ideology. So that was it. Them seeing how they were treated. And um, I was raised by my mother to never forget our roots. And my mother was raised in abject poverty, Mexican woman raised in abject poverty. And I knew I had certain privilege because my dad, on the contrary, was raised in the mansions of Atherton and Burlingame, a brilliant man. So I had had white privilege, even though I'm, I'm biracial, but that white part of me uh, I, I, I had been put in the top track of the school school system at, at Berkeley. Uh, we took some IQ tests in the fourth and eighth grade or something. Then you got tracked. So I was hanging around real brilliant. The the, stu- the kids of um, professors, of ber- heads of departments, you know, the, Kenneth Stamp wrote The Peculiar Institution. His daughter would be in my classes. So I was around really bright, conscientious young people. And we were taught by teachers at Berkeley High who respected our intelligence. And um, and so I think I knew that I had mental skills. I knew that I had an ability. I was a radical in the 60s. I also, uh, with La, La Raza movement, uh, and we were getting pretty radical. We were thinking that maybe Martin Luther King, you know, do we really want to take the punches, you know? Uh, to get to our our freedoms or our advancement, so I had to I had to really seriously consider what role I could play in a movement. I knew that they had the army, the air force, every damn thing. We were not going to have a violent revolution in America and get anywhere. Since you are listening to this, we know that you are a devotee of public radio. We also know that there is more competition than ever in history for your limited time. With all of the powerhouse stations in New York, Chicago, and L.A. putting out well-funded new podcasts every day, it is literally impossible to listen to even 1% of the shows about the subjects that you love and care about. Considering this, we ask you to set aside some time for us, locally produced radio, with guests you may know, may even share coffee with in the morning, talking about issues and places that are a part of your everyday life. Think global. Listen local. At least some of the time. We appreciate it for sure. That was the Miller Family Band, recorded live by the banks of the North Fork of the Big River. And let's go back to our interview with Polly Gervin, attorney, activist, environmentalist, and anti-war warrior. But a guy named Herb, Herbert Marcuse wrote a book called The One-Dimensional Man. And he said, us radical youth, we had to go get our educations, go through the long march of the institutions, he said, just like the communist long march across China during the revolution. He said we had to be able to meet the opposition, the oil and gas industry, the whomever you're going up against. We had to be able to meet them and be prepared and be smarter than them, be better prepared and be smarter and be able to pull it off. But that the only way we could was to go into the dominant cultures, academic institutions and, and get the skills. 
I, I mean, I never thought of being a lawyer growing up. I mean, it just wasn't in my, no one in my family was a lawyer. But I thought I, I sacrificed myself. I truly believe I sacrificed myself. I did not enjoy law school. It was colonialist education writ large by going to an elitist East Coast law school. Um, and um, pretty much Anglo-Saxon law, which is the protection of private property and the protection of accumulation of wealth. And I'm a socialist. So it was like, oh, my God, how am I get through this? And, you know, really had to learn a lot of Wall Street law, uh, uniform commercial code, real estate. Remember the first day of real estate law, uh, the teacher's going, what is real property? What is real property? And this young Jewish girl holds up her hand and she goes, well, in the context of Native Americans, you'd have to say it's theft. I thought, oh, my God, she's going to be my friend for life. And she was, I kept real close to that girl. I even went into the system. Not only was I a lawyer, I, I before law school, I, I, I rose to a very elevated level of organizing within the Democratic Party, both a senatorial race, a gubernatorial race. I did a presidential race in Venezuela. That's a whole nother story. But so oh. I, went, I went out, I thought Berkeley was not the real world, okay? I, I, I just, I wanted to go see the real world. See how it works. So I did Democratic Party prior to law school. Then after law school, I did international corporate law in a large Tony firm in the San Francisco, uh, Graham and James. And in that firm, I represented large commercial interests like um, Bank of Tokyo, Mitsubishi, the, the Russian shipping fleet. And to see how to see how the corporate international structure worked. These were all, this is all my wanting to learn how to fight the system at my best ability. And you, you, you really have to see it in a way. You have to, I guess you could read about it, but I just do, dove into it. I was sort of camouflaged. I was a camouflaged socialist in <laughs> um, <laughs> trying to get education, as broad of an education as I could get. And um, that's... I think why I became a lawyer, so I could serve the oppressed in a better fashion, with more, with more strength and with more skills. What do you see as uh, a couple of highlights of your legal career? Well, I was fortunate in my third year of law school, I got a human rights fellowship, which is great. They pay for your third year, and I've been on loans and and scholarship. So I can remember being called up to this way up into the administrative levels of the law school and this old man behind his desk. I thought, oh, well, I said, what have I done? What have I done? What am I in trouble for? I didn't know why the administration would be calling me up and this old little man telling. He just started cracking up. He said, well, we're going to pay for your third year. Uh, you're getting this fellowship for human rights. You're the most likely in your class to do civil rights work. We determined. Nice. Yeah, nice, huh? So I got the group. I had to take race and poverty law from the director of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. That was fine. I learned a lot. But I got to work with them on uh, on a national challenge to the death penalty on equal protection grounds, showing that people of color, blacks in many of the cases, were disproportionately executed to the amount of crime of, of homicidal crimes they committed that whites were were um were committing over 50% of the homicides and black people were were the two thirds of the people going to uh, death row 
So it was a good case. It taught me um, politics. It taught me, you know, it's just not whoever walks in the door. You have to come up with a real good strategy. You have to find the best potential client to plaintiffs uh, to wage your constitutional arguments on. So I'd say that was really good experience for me, that case. I wasn't totally a litigator in my career. I was, I, I used my degree to get me to places where I could fight social justice fights. Litigation, I did a great case for the Native American church, the Peyote church of Bar a Barney Old Coyote on the Crow chapter of the uh, Native American church. Uh, was able to get him to be able to claim his tax deductions, a lot of his giveaways when his wife was dying. He gave away quarter horses. He gave away, it's the spirit of Indian religion to give away. But I thought, well, if you put money in the in the little box or whatever in church, and you can say that's a, a contribution, why can't we have a tax deductible con contribution for the giveaways at the Native American peyote ceremonies. We prevailed. So that's a good one. We didn't prevail, by the way, the death penalty case, we didn't prevail and it was very alarming. But mostly my legal career has been offering um, assistance to people uh, in duress, battered women. I did a lot of battered women litigation. I also did abused children, uh, protecting them and keeping them in their cultural nexus under the Indian Child Welfare Act. So that goes back to my youth and some of the abuses I saw, wanting to be able to help children not face what I had to see. I've been able to do a lot of cultural work in the Native communities, um, repatriation, taking on the UC system for their deplorable handling of the return of Native American human reigns, taking on Harvard. Uh, they, these two institutions were the most out of compliance with the Native American Grave Protection and Repatriation Act. I went in with 10 local tribes, the Mendocino County Tribal Chairpersons Association and their elders uh, to, and we visited museums throughout the nation trying to reclaim sacred objects and human remains on, on a, uh, you know, captured in these museums. So that was, you know, and then I guess I've been lucky. I've been a teacher in Indian country. I've trained at 28 reservations, the basics of Indian law, in a time when people really didn't know what tribal sovereignty sort of was back in the uh, uh, early, late 70s, early 80s. I got to work before the fish court up in the Yurok territories during the uh, fish wars, take on the FBI, uh, represent protesting Indians for their fishing rights. Uh, so, and I've met a lot, and I've just done a lot in Indian law, um, but I've met along the way the best and the brightest, uh, I say, in Indian country, the, the spirit warriors, the um, the intellectuals, the lawyers, the, uh, I've met just fantastic, I've had fantastic teachers in Indian country, always in the context of a struggle. It was, I would be there helping but bringing my legal skills to bear in helping. So I'm happy I got a law degree. I'm really happy I'm retired too, because we're, we're <laughs> representing poor people. I tell you, I'm, I'm the person who gave probably the most free law in all of Mendocino County, because many of my clients at the, just at the reservation level, the common citizens uh, were poor. And but they would get in trouble. And I sh probably should have been a criminal lawyer, but I'm a civil lawyer. But anyway, 
I had to um, represent people. They'd come to me like on a Wednesday, the trials the next Thursday, terribly complex cases, tried to put a whole trial strategy together within a week. I had to do this a lot. I had always last minute, huge crisis cases and poor people. So I had to get to the point where I make, I could maybe say no, because I, I mean, so I, I, by retiring, I was able to finally say, I can't do it. You know, I, I, I'm stretched a little thin. I, I just can't. So right now I'm more a technical advisor, strategist, legal a policy analyst. I'm not actively practicing in courts of law, but I continue to assist, particularly I have assisted the Coyote Valley Band recently in their efforts to protect their cultural resources and the trees and critters at the 50,000 acre state forest, uh, Jackson State Forest. And once again, I've met a collective of wonderful people from you, Chad, to from the trail stewards to, to just all the individual activists who show up in the woods, really decent people. And I think that's a benefit of being an activist attorney. You don't get rich hardly at all, but you do get rich in goodness. You get rich in goodness, I'd say. So we are almost out of time and we're going to be joined very soon by uh, women with bows. What is most important to you now as an older gay woman? I think being a role model and a mentor. I think at this point in time in our lives, Priscilla's in mine, she's also my partner, very, very um, committed activist for her people. I think it's time for us to pass the torch and uh, to be advisors, to be, I, I, I do believe that after a life of activism and you do pick up knowledge, you pick up uh, t- tactics, you pick up um, strategy uh, and courage, I'd say, of course. And um, to share with young people uh, as they take up the struggle for protecting tri- tribal sovereignty, for protecting um, the environment, uh, to share with them, and not just Native, to share too with the young forest warriors who are non-Native, the knowledge PC and I have gathered over years of activism. And then for the gay and lesbian and transgendered community, um, to show, to stand up for them as a profile in courage and to let them know that, come on, don't be afraid. Be who you genuinely are and um, join with other good, genuine people fighting freedom struggles or fighting protection of Mother Earth struggles. I think it's, I just, and then I'm also a great grandma, auntie. I spend a lot of time with tribal youth in my family. Um, I want to let them have some of the same privilege opportunities I had. I um, want to raise them like my mother raised me um, to be a moral, to be moral people and to be kind and to fight for rights. Because if you don't stand up and fight, they'll, they'll shrivel and be taken away. So I guess it's just to uh, illustrate that you can be radical and have a good life that you don't have to follow your resume uh, for, you know, the, we all have to survive, but that, that there is a way to 
if you're a pretty good grant writer and you have good friends, there is a way to live a life that is not based on corporate competition, that is not based on just political um, jockeying for power, that is really based on the love of yourself and your community. And that I think I just want to teach people love as much as I can. And that this color, I mean, I really do believe and it's been a struggle for me because I really do not like white supremacists and I do not like colonialism. But it, I, ha, I truly do believe now that you have to look for pe to people not for the color of their skin, but for the content of their souls. And I don't believe souls have color. And I want my kids, the kids I raise, to know this, to still have great pride in their ethnic identity and their cultural identity, but also to be not filled with hate, but filled with love and hope. And I think Priscilla and I do that. I think that's how we nurture. And I, can, I and as an elder, it's my obligation to bring as much love and hope into the hearts of, it's a hard life to be Indian. It is hard to be Indian, but still, because that's the world I live in, to still open doors for them, to still show that it's, Show them it's not just the kids of the coast who should know how to do organic gardening and run through the run through the forest and enjoy just that intimate connection with the force of life, but to get our kids out there too, they need the healing of the forest. So camp, run through the woods, learn how to pick the herbs, all of these things are to me to inculcate in the kids a sense of love of nature. And, and, and comfort, uh, familiarity with nature. I think that's really important for Indian youth, particularly whose tribes were so severed from their um, from their connection to the land and put on these little spits of reservations, 57 acres and such like that. So just want to be a good person. I want the kids to become good people. I want them mostly to be kind. We have class differences, we have race differences, but for those places where there's unity of purpose, let's hold those circles sacred. Let's, let's love each other as we go forward to love the earth. I mean, let's love the trees, to love the trees with the same, to love people with that same sacred feeling we have towards the trees. I mean, I'm not so good that I'm going to love white supremacists. I'm just not. I'm not an advanced soul like Gandhi dying with a prayer for his assassinator on his lips. I'm not that advanced. But at <laughs> least within the movement of co of fellow activists to let's have a circle of, of love so the children see us comporting ourselves that way in those circles. Amen. Ollie Gervin, thank you so much for the words of wisdom and the inspiration and your decades of activism. Yeah, well, thank you, too. And I don't often talk about being a lesbian. So, but here you go, Mendocino. I know you know all, all you know I am. But I did, and I did appreciate an opportunity to look at my life with you from that vantage point and, and to share. I hope, I hope some young people may have felt soothed or better by my honesty here today. That was my purpose. <laughs> All right. We just heard from Polly Gervin, an out and proud gay woman, activist, and environmentalist. Now take a listen to this. 
Revolution, written and performed by queer activist Tatum Starr of Women with Bows.
That song was called Revolution, composed and performed by Tatum Starr, a Kashaya Pomo queer indigenous artist who is showing their activism through song because music is the one language that we all understand. It's universal, and regardless of where you are from or what struggles you've been through from all walks of life, we all understand the energy that is song. They hope that this song inspires others from all walks of life to stand up against corruption and to realize the potential they have to make change. That was Tatum, the child of our upcoming guest, Tanda Bluebear. We have Tanda Bluebear of Women with Bows On, and we spoke with her a few months back. They are a queer indigenous organization that does a lot of incredible activism around the Northwest and Cal- Northern California. And Tanda's going to share with us what they did this winter. Hello. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Um, so yeah, this winter was great. Uh, we go out in extreme weather. And so we actually took a venture to South Dakota uh, to Wounded Knee Community. And uh, they had a really bad storm there that had some of the elders in 17-foot drifts. And if you know how this reservation works, a lot of these places are in rural areas. And so uh, if the snowplows can't get to there, they can't get out. And and so no food um, and water becomes an issue. Um, And so what we do is we go out in those times when other people normally wouldn't. And we go out there and uh, we spend a lot of time uh, hand sledding food up to elders and making wow. sure that the community, the, the elders in the community had food and had water and, and the things that they needed. Um, we spent a lot of the time also digging out uh, different cars so that uh, one of our elders, so that they had at least one car that they could put on the road and could get back and forth to town with. And uh, Wounded Knee area is one of those areas where there's nothing besides Wounded Knee. Um, there's like maybe a couple small stores seven to 15 miles, but then the grocery store and everything like that is, is a two hour drive. And if, if you're in extreme weather like that, you're not driving anywhere. And so uh, that's what our team spent uh, a lot of this winter doing. And then we came home for the floods here in California. Just in time. Uh, Yeah. And so we tried to help our unhoused uh, communities here in our own community as well. So that's what we did uh, this winter. And it was, hard and it it pushed my entire team to their limits but I'll tell you what it's gratifying in the way that we know that our elders were taken care of and uh sometimes it's just important to serve as a beacon of hope so that people know that somebody sees you um in a lot of these communities a lot of the elders that we speak with they're always saying just let people know we're here that we haven't gone anywhere like we're still out here and they're they don't want, I don't think anybody wants to be forgotten. And then, so when you hit really bad weather like that, um, it's easy to lose hope really fast, especially out there in the rural areas where you don't have water. And a lot of these uh, elders and stuff, they don't have uh, indoor plumbing either. And where were you working in California when you came back and were helping people after the floods? Uh, right now, we're still doing uh, the mutual aid work. Um, as we get donations in for that. But we came home and we assisted camp resolution with pallets and things like that to get uh, tents and stuff up off the floor. Um, and then right now we're, we are center focused right now a little bit uh, with Pomo land back, obviously, because I'm Pomo Kashaya. But also uh, while we wait and, and from uh, uh, instructions from our elders, 
we are doing a lot of just humanities work. So we're working with Camp Resolution, which is an unhoused community in Sacramento um, that is standing their ground. They want to be treated like human beings. They want housing and they want it now. Uh, currently, we're working with a um, quadriplegic woman who is in a tent because here in California, if you don't have a substance abuse problem, then there's no help for you. If you don't have a home, you can't get SSI or IHSS help. This is a quadriplegic person who has their mother helping them out of a tent. And so right now we're, we're going through the city uh, city meetings and stuff about this and what we can do. Uh, we just had a wonderful meeting the other day uh, with some city planners for the homeless projects that are going on that um, are being very helpful right now. And so we're in talks uh, to possibly run a, an initiative that my team has worked on for many years uh, called Fifth Wind Project. And it will completely revolutionize the way that we deal with some of the most pressing issues across this entire nation. So we're really excited about that and hopefully we'll get all that started within this five years this next five years so yeah is there any way that people can help you um as of right now what we just tell people is if if we're in the fundraising phase right now so if they want to go to womenwithbows.org um they can find a way right on on our page on how to donate and how to contribute and stuff like that uh once we break ground we will be doing a call out especially for local area uh people to come out and volunteer um as we break ground and, and start to build a sustainable uh community for our unhoused peoples mm -hmm. well thank you so much tanda i really encourage people to go to their website and this is a small organization but it's amazing what they what they're doing and you know, send them a few bucks, maybe more than a few bucks, and it'll it will be well used. There's no administrative fees. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for spending the last hour with us here on Pride Nation 101. Queer voices, music, opinions, and lies from Highway 101 to the world. I am Chad Swimmer, and I am finishing this show very inspired. Thank you, Tanda and Tatum. Thank you, Polly Gervin. Thank you, Roland. Thank you all for listening. And as always, the views and opinions expressed by those of us on this show are not the opinions of others, people who are listening. And wait a minute, let me get this correct. The views and opinions expressed on this show are those of only our guests and ourselves, and not those of the staff or management of any station that might air this show. Let's go out with some sounds from a demonstration that all of our guests and myself were at at the California Natural Resources Agency last September 28th. <laughs> 